This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. In early December, the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court submitted its final report on the role of the Supreme Court and its analysis of the arguments for and against Supreme Court reform. I testified before the commission, but more importantly, so did our next guest, Gabe Roth who is the head of Fix the Court, a nonprofit that advocates for changes to the federal judiciary, and in particular to the Supreme Court, to make it more open and accountable. Gabe, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. Before we dive into the Commission's work and its report, can you tell us a little bit more about how and why you started Fix the Court? Sure. So, so my background's actually not in the law. It's in broadcast journalism. Um, but I went into local news after grad school and didn't love that, so moved to D.C. and started working in political consulting. And it so happened that about a decade ago, I had a bunch of clients doing communications work for them that had cases going through the federal courts. So that was same-sex marriage plaintiffs and their nonprofits, uh, DACA recipients, Dreamers and their nonprofits, and voting rights plaintiffs and some of their nonprofits. And you know, they were in Texas and Maine and California, and they would say, Gabe, well, you know, we'll just, we don't need to fly into DC. We'll just watch our arguments on C-SPAN 3. And, and, that's not a, <laughs> and that's not a thing, as you know. So with my background in broadcast journalism, I thought, and I you know, spoke to the reporters committee, I spoke to C-SPAN, I, I decided to start something called the Coalition for Court Transparency, which was like me and 20 nonprofits in the uh, advocacy space, media space, legal space, trying to get cameras in the Supreme Court. Obviously, that wasn't successful. But as I did events with the coalition, I realized that it wasn't just this idea of this lack of broadcast access to the Supreme Court oral arguments and opinion announcements that made the court the most powerful, least accountable institution in D.C., right? It's their lack of ethics code. It's the fact that they can serve for 35 years with little accountability. It's the fact that we don't know where they're speaking, who they're speaking to, and what they're saying that their financial disclosure reports, which come out once a year, um, are not contemporaneous accounting of what they have in their portfolios. Their, their gifts aren't reported. They get a thousand personal hospitality exemptions. We don't know what stocks they, they have uh, and, and what they're buying and selling when they're hearing cases. So they have all sorts of uh, ethical shortcomings vis-a-vis the other branches and even relative to the lower court. So I wanted to, to fix that. So I decided to start my own thing in 2014, and uh, it's been going since then. I can kind of feel my blood pressure rising as you describe all of these issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, 2022 uh, but, is going to be you, a big year for us, Amy. I think, I think we'll fix like at least, at least two or three of those next year, I promise. Well, we're, we're, we're going to get to that at the, uh, towards the end, so that's, that's good. That's good. Uh, but let's move on to the commission's report, which to the disappointment of a lot of people, didn't make any recommendations about court expansion uh, in particular. And to be clear, that wasn't what they were charged with sure. doing. But let's start at the 35,000 foot level. Was there anything in there that surprised you? I think, look, I, th- I think uh, to say something positive about the report, I think there were a lot of historical lessons or remembrances that were a part of it that are really valuable, right? Like, I, I don't remember what or before reading the report, I didn't remember what Frederick Douglass had said about the Dred Scott decision. Like, that's of value to me and anyone else reading the report. 
Um, I didn't remember some of the Jacksonian era uh, give and take over the Supreme Court and the number of seats. I didn't remember some of the history of the the the, the, the creation of the circuit courts and how that that sort of went. It, it changed on what, the reasons for why they were created. Yeah, yeah. So so those were some of the things that I think were put out there by the report that 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 you know were, were val- maybe not surprising per se, but at least I think they were they were valuable and they were. Um, Will, will be useful for for posterity, right? It's it's sort of a you know they they want it to be a one stop shop. I think they left out a few things that I wish they they would have included, but uh, specifically on 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 term limits proposals and, and and the history there. But you know I, I think it did a, did a fairly decent job of, of of giving the lay of the land. But given the star power, given the the, the opinions, given the 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 problems that so many of us see at the Supreme Court in terms of its losing its legitimacy. It, I was surprised that it that it didn't define that problem. Like it, it just seemed that so much of the report, it just assumed that you know things were going sort of okay in the judiciary, and most of the country was like fine with what's going on. When I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and and you know, I guess the other thing that surprised me was I think that instead of maybe relying on my testimony or your testimony, I think that it overvalued the testimony of a, um, you know, a small group of practitioners um, who, who benefit from the status quo. Um, and it's possible that you or I might benefit from the status quo, but I think there are folks that, you know, there was one uh, brief, I don't know what to call it, test- testimony statement in particular that they kept referring to from a, a group of SCOTUS practitioners that was really, that threw a lot of cold water on change. So, you know, I was surprised that that one uh, statement was given so much play over others. So, you know, some good, some bad, mostly bad, but uh, but not, not, not an overall great effort. And then as soon as it was over, we started hearing from the commissioners you yeah. know, in op-ed pieces and stuff like that. That was, that was also kind of surprising. You know, we had this sort of unanimous report and then... Just kidding. You know, Here are all of our concurring opinions. Them. Yeah. Yeah, we got Tribe and Gertner in the Post saying they want to expand the court. Roosevelt in Time saying he wants to expand the court. Fredrickson in the Daily News saying she wants to expand the court. I think we got Judges Griffith and Levi in the Washington Post saying that all court structural reform ideas are bad. I think we got maybe Adam White writing a few things, uh, another conservative. But yeah, it was, I, I, I did find it funny, as you did, that a bunch of folks were running to the op-ed pages the second that the ink was dry, being like, eh, well, this is how we actually feel. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the reforms that Fix the Court has supported and about which you testified and how they fared at the commission. And I want to start with one you've already mentioned, which is term limits. And first, talk about, oh, for just a second, about why you think they're a good idea. Sure, yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone should serve in government for 30 or 35 years unaccountably, right? There are U.S. senators who serve that long, but they have to sit for election every six years. There are U.S. representatives who sit for that long, but they have to serve, uh, sit for election every two years. So there's really no way to, to rein in their, in their power. And the only type of punishment that exists for a Supreme Court justice is impeachment and removal, which has never happened in U.S. history. So I think the idea that you have a lot of power and and the fact that the justices have more power now than I think ever before, right? There's no, you know, constitutional conversation between the branches. It's not, oh, Congress is going to pass the law and then 
maybe the Supreme Court will overturn some of it or all of it, and then Congress will go back and rewrite it. Or similar, a federal agency uh, has a, the administration has a, an agency that um, puts out a, a policy that then will be challenged in some way, and then oh, the agency will rewrite the policy. No, like constitutional conversation stops; it is dead. Scotus Blog has actually <laughs> covered this a, a bunch. There's a Rakesan paper in about eight or nine years ago that talked about this. Um, this is one of the reasons fix the courts ex- fix the court exists is that that it's ridiculous that this constitutional conversation no longer exists and that the Supreme Court has this so so much outsized power that the the Congress is not you know going back and, and changing some of the, you know its laws to uh, account for its decisions. So I want less power concentrated in the hands of of the powerful at the court, and I think one way to do that is to reduce their length of tenure. So having instead of a you know. 36 years like William Douglas served or 35 years like John Paul Stevens or 30 years like uh, close to 30 years like Scalia and Kennedy uh, and Thomas, how about 18 years? So you would have a new justice, nine justices, right, appointed every other year. So every other year, two years, nine times two is 18. And 18 years more closely hues to what modern democracies across the world, their top judges serve. Every U.S. state uh, has, besides Rhode Island, has some sort of ma- mandatory retirement age, term limit, or retention election. So it cues closer to what top state court judges serve, and I think it would it would reduce the power of the, the judiciary, knowing that they're never more than two years from a new court. They would try to rule between the forty yard lines, and, and so their opinions stand the test of time instead of leading to constitutional whiplash. So um, I think that it's also just a very popular. You know, it sort of helps. Like as I was thinking of which fixes to include and fix the court, it, it it's always something that 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 pulls really well, and, and that I think people sort of in their guts understand that you know we don't want nine unelected officials serving for you know half of their lifetimes. How do you get around the whole life tenure issue? Yeah. So Article uh, Three, Section One of the Constitution says judges shall uh, hold their offices uh, during good behavior, and good behavior has been understood to mean for life since uh, it's, it's a Latin phrase that we borrowed from the English after there was uh, in the 16th and 17th century, a few uh, English monarchs were firing judges for basically no reason. And so uh, a, a, an act of parliament changed that so they judges could serve uh, during good behavior. And, and we, we, we copied that in, in the Constitution. And, and I think that's, that's fine that, that Supreme Court justices serve for life in the federal judiciary. But I do believe that Congress has the ability, under the basic understanding of the Constitution, to change the duties of, of the justices. They're in the office of federal judge for their entire lives, right? After, but after 18 years, your duties change. You, are, you become a senior justice. And as a senior justice... You do what David Souter has done, and Sandra Day O'Connor, and and Brennan, and uh, Thurgood Marshall, and you know half a dozen other justices since the law changed to allow it. You you sit by designation on a lower court. David Souter is still doing that, as far as I can remember. Um, so you know you're 18 years are on SCOTUS for life. You're in the judiciary, but after 18 years, you rotate down to a lower court if you want to continue to serve, or you don't have to, to, to serve. You can go retire and be with your grandkids if you want. Um, but, but I think that Congress has changed the duties of federal judge dozen, well, maybe not dozens, but at least a dozen times throughout U.S. history, adding senior status to lo- the lower courts. And I think they could add senior status to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court even upheld the cha- the, this cha- move to senior status in, in a case called Booth versus U.S. in uh, 1934. So... 
Uh, I think Congress has every right to change the duties of Supreme Court justice, maybe not the current ones. I mean, I think that that those might um, be exempt from any new term limits law, at least the one that has uh, been introduced in this Congress by Congressman Khanna and has a bunch of co-sponsors in the House. Uh, that would be 18 years with senior status. Uh, so, yeah, I think we, we you know, we're, we're, no one's trying to kick out, at least with this proposal, no one's trying to kick out Thomas or... Uh, or Breyer, who've been been in for longer than eighteen years, but I think moving forward, if this bill were to pass, you'd see, you know, justices rotating down after eighteen years and and having a less powerful institution on one first street. And so, what did the commission think about the term limits? These were less controversial than expanding the court. It is, yeah. I think it's less. It's it's definitely more popular, and you know, we poll Democrats, Republicans, Independents, all of them no matter how you ask the question, prefer a term limit to a, a court expansion. Um, you know, I think that term limits, it came out okay. I think I think a lot of commissioners, and I mean, I know personally, because I've had conversations with probably half of them about it, do support term limits, do support ending life tenure. There, there are questions about constitutionality, which is fine. I mean, I think that, you know, with a bunch of law professors, that's sort of like their job to have you know, to say on the one hand, but also on the other hand, when the commission was, you know, primarily comprised of law professors, you know, so so it did have this sort of, well, you could do this, or you maybe you can't do this. So that was, I guess, to be expected. Didn't love that part where they were throwing cold water on the constitutionality. But, you know, again, I think they had they had to, to, to write that, at least there were some commissioners who wanted to write that in. Um, but overall, I think it was pretty sanguine towards towards term limits, at least more so than, than court expansion. I think court expansion came out and rightly so, came out pretty badly in this report. You know, I think, look, I think there's a lot of reasons people support court expansion nowadays. I think it's like a simple fix, like, oh, let's wave a magic wand, and all of a sudden we have 13 justices, and the liberals are, you know, on the upswing again, Um, though that's not really how necessarily things would work, and not how cases even get to the Supreme Court, or it's not like the court historically has been a beacon of progressivism, so like just having a 7-6 liberal Supreme Court wouldn't necessarily change things, and wouldn't change things immediately, and by the time it might change things, well, it would be an 11-7 conservative court after President Nikki Haley adds five justices in, in, in 2025. So, you know, I think it's, 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 it's poorly thought out, and clearly it's not working as a threat because, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade is gone, so, you know, it's, which sucks, at least in my personal, not in Fix the Court's opinion because we're neutral, but in my personal opinion, I think that's awful, but, you know, that's not the way to fix that, like, threatening the court with packing clearly has not worked. So go back to the drawing board, folks. And I think just long-term term limits is a, is a more reasoned solution that can get bipartisan support, which you have to have nowadays. That's, you know, it's just the state of play right now. It's like, you know, I, term limits was part of fix the court before I knew that, you know, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and, and, and John Kennedy at one point in their lives supported it. But, you know, that's definitely a benefit that a pro- pro- proposal like term limits is something that has at least historically gotten bipartisan support. Move on to some, a couple of other things that also fared, you know, given the commission sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, fared reasonably well, things that you, you advocated for in your testimony, the financial disclosures, and then, you know, having the idea of having an ethics code and being transparent about it. Can you talk a little bit about it? And by the way, I noticed when I was on your website getting getting ready to talk to you, that Justice Alito did finally file his his financial disclosures. He did. Ni- you know, ninety days after, but he loves you know, being late. Days... He's allowed to be. Yeah, 
and then it's not particularly newsworthy, you know. Who no, knew? no, it's smart. It's very smart. I mean, I, 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 I there is definitely a strategic value in uh, in filing late, but uh, well, yeah. And if this courthouse ethics and in, in, uh, transparency act passes, uh, the Senate already passed the House. We'll we'll have every justices and lower federal court judges. Uh, financial disclosure online within uh, within ninety days of the filing deadline, which would be which would be incredible. I missed the thumb drive, but you, yeah, you do miss. Yeah, some some people would, but I think everyone else would be would be more happy to just go to a, <laughs> a, a website on August fourteenth and just be like, oh wow, here's all two thousand judges' uh, financial disclosures. Which, by the way, it's almost twenty twenty two, and we're still waiting for the lower courts twenty nineteen disclosures. So just wanted to. To put that out there, but yeah, you're quite so. Yeah, I think financial disclosures. They the 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 commission said that they do want some more transparency there, which to me would be you know online uh, pu- publishing of financial disclosures. And actually, the Supreme Court website, someone caught this, and you can look at check it out on on I think archive.org. But the Supreme Court did put a little tab in the media, or it's a it's a, it's a media menu, and then under the media menu, there's like you know press credentials, hard pass holders. Uh, media releases, whatever it is, uh, media advisories and press releases, but they had, you know, justices' financial disclosures as one of those dro- from the drop down. So maybe, and, and it disappeared after a day. So maybe they're readying it. Uh, maybe they're readying. Interesting. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe Chief Justice Roberts in his year end uh, uh, report, which comes out shortly, uh, might be uh, might might talk about that. So who knows? But yeah. So I mentioned that it talked about you know just a few why the few justices own stocks and how that's a little weird. It mentioned that uh, that live streaming should should continue. There's no, you know, we I think it said, you know, we can debate about cameras in the courtroom, but, you know, live audio should continue. So I thought that was uh, positive. You know, it talked about a, a Supreme Court ethics code and all the ways to to impose it. And, and you know, should Congress impose an ethics code on the Supreme Court? Should the Supreme Court write its own ethics code? You know, you may remember Justice Kagan said in a, budget hearing in 2019, oh, Chief Justice Roberts is studying whether or not we should have an ethics code. Um, and my sources tell me that that study is ongoing and hasn't, there hasn't been a definitive one way or another. So uh, it's very thorough. I mean, it's been, a, it's been like almost three years, guys. Like, let's, let's, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, study or get off the pot, as they say. You know, so so I, I think overall it was it was positive that they were mentioned and they were talked about somewhat. Po- but they could have been like SCOTUS needs an ethics code. Like I know they're not supposed to quote unquote come up with recommendations, but if all thirty four members or thirty two of them think that there should be a Supreme Court ethics code, however it should be imposed, you know, the, the language could have been a little stronger, I think, and and, and it was just it was very sort of mealy mouthed in a way that I didn't I didn't quite love. And and look, maybe there was. A couple of holdouts, but at the same time, like they're going to run to the op-ed pages anyway and be holdouts. So you might as well be a little bit stronger um, in the text of the uh, of the report. But overall, yeah, the, the, there was there was some general positivity towards these pro-transparency reforms that fix the court advocates for. On these reforms that you're already advocating for, I mean, you, you've talked about how you're working with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Um, which is pretty unusual these days. It is. It's, um, on it's just, a trip. Just about anything else. But you're already working on this stuff. Like, do you expect anything to come out of the commission, or this is just sort of another brick in the wall that that's helpful to you? But you're already working on this stuff. Yeah, it didn't doesn't really change my day to day or my staff's day to day. I think that you know I, I was 
there are members of Congress who have read the report and are disappointed in the report and are preparing legislation to be introduced early next year in response, partly in response to the report. But like knowing these members of Congress and, and, and their charges and their interests, it's also fairly likely they would have introduced these bills anyway, whether it be on tenure or other transparency issues. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't I think, you know, the goal of the commission was to sort of get this off of Joe Biden's plate for a year so we could focus on other things. It succeeded. Uh, he hasn't had to answer questions about the Supreme Court really in, in, in about a year besides, you know, a few statements uh, on trying to uphold Roe v. Wade. So, yeah, it, it succeeded in that function. But, you know, I think there's still a, a fair number of members in Congress who just want more government transparency and accountability. And I think that that crosses party lines. I think that, you know, whether it be Jerry Nadler or Hank Johnson, who are the Democrats that are on the top of the House Judiciary Committee and the court subcommittee, Dick Durbin or Sheldon Whitehouse, again, that's the Senate, their Senate counterparts. And then, you know, and, and you've got Daryl Issa, the Republican who, who cares about oversight, Chuck Grassley, a Republican who cares about oversight. So there are people to work with in both parties who care about bringing the judiciary kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And, and we're always more than happy to partner with them. All right. If you could pick one of these reforms for Congress to pass and the president to sign, which one would it be? Would it be term limits? Oh, yeah, it would be term limits. I think that's that's probably the hardest. But um, I think there's this mythology that only nine people in the country could ever be a Supreme Court justice at any given time, right? That if and even Chief Justice, sorry, Chief Justice, even Justice Breyer has hinted at this, or sorry, well, Ginsburg definitely hinted at this when he's like, when she said, I think in 2014, you know, who could President Obama appoint to replace me, you know, because I think at the time, there was still a 60 vote threshold. And I think the Democrats maybe only had 55 seats at the time. That, that statement, just, uh, Justice Ginsburg saying, who could President Obama appoint to, re- to replace me to do this job? The answer is, I think, roughly like 200 other federal appeals court judges, Justice Ginsburg. Um, and that's the case now. There are, I can think of easily 200 appeals court judges. Well, there are like 189 appeals court judges, well, if you include the scene, whatever the number is. Let's just be round, you know, I'm sure some fact checker in the comments is going to, you know, correct me. But roughly 200 appeals court judges right now. And I think any of them, well, maybe there's like two or three in the Fifth Circuit that I don't think could do the job. But besides those guys, I think pretty much anyone could do the job of Supreme Court justice who is a federal appeals court judge. So um, I I think that that is, to me, one of the strongest arguments in favor of term limits, because instead of having, you know, average tenures of upwards of 28 years now, heading to 30 very quickly, um, when it used to be 15, just a generation and a half ago, you know, I, I think that having an 18-year term limit would, would actually double the number of justices on the Supreme Court over the next century. We've done the math. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's great to, to have people of diverse backgrounds, different life experiences on the court. Like there's value of having, you know, a, a guy who grew up poor in Georgia on the court. And there's a guy, a value of having a woman who, who grew up poor in, this, in, in the South Bronx on the court. And there's value of having a bunch of people who spent their formative years in the Bay Area on the court. So, so you know, more of that would happen with 18-year term limits. And, and I think having a judiciary that is more reflective of the public rather than nine people in robes who almost never change uh, would be a benefit to, to our democracy. What's on Fix the Court's agenda for 2022? Oh, everything. Everything is on the agenda. Um, primarily, it's, it's, it's a lot of work with Congress. 
you know, we do a ton of research, a lot of FOIAs, a lot of, you know, judicial conflict, re conflicts research, and that, that's always ongoing. But I think, you know, our two main focuses uh, in, in 2022 are going to be the free pacer bill and the, the judicial stock bill. So the free pacer bill is called the Open Courts Act. It passed the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously uh, a few weeks ago. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, and it would make PACER free. I mean, PACER is 10 cents a page to read any federal court filing, which is ridiculous in, in, in 2021. It adds up very quickly. Very, very quickly. Anyone who's listening now and who's spent any time on, on that interface knows. And it's, it's often very confusing. And I'm on it every day. And I get, I get you know, I was looking up a case in the Fourth Circuit this morning and just couldn't find a docket number and couldn't, you know, everything was sort of out of order and 87 came before 82 and it was just, it was a mess and you couldn't search. Obviously there's almost no the search function in Pacer is not, doesn't work across courts. So, um, so it would modernize Pacer within three years and it would make it free for the, the, the regular everyday user. I realize like the, the Supreme Court has a very small docket compared to the other federal courts, but it does that very well. It's yeah. I'm I'm always impressed with the Supreme Court's digital filing system. I mean, for years, I you'd go. I mean, I still often go to SCOTUS blog if I'm looking for, uh, just because I like the interface better and it's color coded and I, I just know what to look for on uh, on SCOTUS blog. And then the, the the search function on SupremeCourt.gov is not great. Like if you're searching for a case and like it's like you know Henry Smith, I mean, geez, you're going to be clicking next like a hundred times to find your case. But, but yeah, I mean, the, Supreme, the fact that the Supreme Court in, since 2017 has been able to manage a free digital docket, and again, to your point, it's a lot smaller than you know, the billion doc, documents that exist in the lower federal courts. But uh, you know, if, the, if the Supreme Court can do it, the lower courts can definitely do it. So that's, that's definitely one main focus for 2022 for us is getting a, getting a similar bill uh, passed through the full Senate and obviously passed through the House and signed by President Biden. And then the other one is the, is the Courthouse Ethics and Transparency Act. This is the bill that came out of the Wall Street Journal article where 131 federal judges were found to have sat on 685 cases in which they had a financial stake, which is ridiculous. Many of these judges Good said, grief. yeah, they didn't know their, that they had a financial conflict, which is just is, defies belief. But very quickly, Congress moved to uh, introduce a law that you know, we'd been talking, Fix the Court had been talking about for years, uh, Free Law Project had been talking about, Project on Government Oversight, had draft language like we, you know, we there are other bills that that we had been working on with, with members of Congress, but this sort of put it all uh, shine a bright light on it, and and Congress introduced a bill that would bring the judiciary in line with the Stock Act. The Stock Act is the uh, the sort of the anti insider trading bill that passed about a decade ago, and so what it would do it it would require federal judges to file a, a transaction report anytime they buy or sell a stock within forty five days of it, uh, which is what members of Congress do, and it would require uh, the judiciary to put judges' financial disclosure reports online within 90 days of the filing deadline. So for members of Congress, it's 30 days. You know, we wanted it to be a little longer for the judiciary. They have they, this these the redaction practices, and they bring in the U.S. Marshal Service. It's this whole thing. So I thought we thought 90 days would be a little bit uh, friendlier. So that bill passed the House 422 to four uh, on December 2nd, and and you know now the action's in the Senate, and and we'll see where it goes in the Senate next year. All right, last question. When we all sit down with the Chiefs year-end report at 6 p.m. and yes. a glass of champagne, what's the topic going to be this year? He's already done COVID. I think he might do COVID again. I mean, I think yeah. there's... I mean, 
why not? Sadly, it's an evergreen topic. Yeah, that's that's uh, you know he's done he's done uh, he's done baseball. Um, he's done ethics. He's done uh, the value of lower court judges. You know he he's 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 done a lot of the greatest hits. So you know it's my hope that he it'll be a, a deep reflection on what modernization fixes he needs to implement in light of fix the court's work and the SCOTUS commission report. Um, but yeah, my bunny's on talk about another pandemic from another time and relate it back to the work of the judiciary in 2021. All right. Well, we'll, we'll find out. Gabe Roth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the work that you're doing to fix the court. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Amy. Always great chatting. All righty. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.